Aloha, and welcome to the Word of Hope, with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. Hope Chapel exists to grow ordinary people into faithful, productive followers of Jesus Christ, equipping them through Bible teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Today, Pastor Ralph brings a message entitled, Chosen and Adopted, will be in Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 3. And now, here's Pastor Ralph. We're talking about being chosen and adopted by the Lord into his family. Chosen and adopted. As we approach our study in Ephesians, what I want you to know is that we're going to end up talking about spiritual warfare. And you can read books about spiritual warfare that, that get real spacey, you know, and they're, ooh, you know, kind of voodoo stuff. Or you can get down to the reality that most of what Satan does when he attacks any of us in any way has to do with one particular tool, and that's a lie. The Bible talks about us raising the shield of faith so we can quench the fiery arrows of the wicked one. But what are those arrows? Lies that he speaks to us. You know, the Bible in one place says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or physical. They're spiritual and mighty to the tearing down of Satan's strongholds. What are his strongholds? Areas of our life where he's gained control. But his primary tool is a lie. You know, you, you come to some point where emotionally uh, you're just a little bit off base. You know, maybe you work so hard that you're just so totally exhausted that you can't even think straight. Or maybe uh, some tragedy happened. Some, some, you know, there was, a, there was a, a loss of life in your family or in your circle of friends. Or maybe those friendly folks at the IRS sent you a letter and you went to the mailbox and you go, <gasps> you know. Maybe there's somebody that you're close to and they, they just looked askance at you and, and they give you an odd look and now you're spending the rest of the day going, why are they mad at me? What did I do to them? And maybe you had a, a, a very high moment. Maybe you were in a play and, and, and you do theater and, and, and it was closing night and it was absolutely wonderful and you're just amped. But whatever it is, it pushes you just out of control just enough that Satan comes to you and starts to, 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 to whisper, often they're temptations. You know, just, you, you know, just, just, you know, the alcoholic here's, you know, just a glass of wine will calm me down right now. You worked hard, you deserve a few beers. You know, you just, it's just, the life's been treating you bad. Just, just kick back and take a couple of puffs on a joint. It'll, it, it won't hurt you. Or you get caught up in pornography or whatever it is. And, and the devil often at a, at, a, at, a, at a weak moment, a blind spot, will, will come to us with a lie. And, and you know, when I say the devil, the Bible teaches that God is everywhere all at once. He's ever, ever aware. But Satan is confined to locality. It uses the word angelos, which translates angels. The Bible says a third of the angels of heaven fell with Satan. We call them Demons. The spirit speaks to your mind, whispers a lie, drags you into something that you'd rather not be dragged into. And then another lie comes on top of it. Maybe it's a lie of guilt. Maybe it's a lie of shame. 
Maybe it's a lie of anger and hatred that builds up, you know, out of whatever else it is that you've been doing. And then it's one lie after another lie after another lie. And if he has his way, ultimately, he'll kill you. Ultimately, he'll kill you in a fight, in a wreck, suicide. He'll destroy you, overdose. He'll find a way to ruin your marriage. He'll find a way to ruin your life. And he'll take your life if he could do it. Now, what do we have to combat what the enemy has to throw at us? Well, we have the truth. What does God say about us? I read an illustration in a book this week. It said, if you took a bowl and you filled it, you put some coffee grounds in the bottom of it and you filled it with water, you really wouldn't have coffee, but you would have murky water. And if you tried to filter that water, I mean, maybe you ran your hands through it. There's no way you can get the coffee out of the water. But if you were to every day go put two ice cubes into that bowl, over a period of time, a, a process of overflow and a process of evaporation, you'll find that you'll end up with pure water. And at the bottom of the bowl will be the sediment of coffee grounds that aren't able to stain the water any longer. Unless you throw more coffee grounds in the water. And the idea is, we come to the Lord, we have a life, and, 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 and our life may be filled with coffee grounds. But as we begin to put the, the purity and the truth, the ice cubes of his word into our life, and they melt into our life, there's a, there's a purification that goes on. The author said, if you do this, that here's what happens. That you start out, you take two steps forward and one back. But pretty soon you're taking three steps forward and one back. And then five forward and one back. And then 20 forward and one back. And then you're not backing up at all. And that's the way we grow as Christians. And it really comes to truth encounters. When we engage the truth of, of who God says we are and what he says about us and what he says he's willing to do for us. And so as we are going into this book of Ephesians, and I'm trying to, to, to go deep. I'm trying to go an, an inch wide and a mile deep. As we're, as we're pressing in here, I'm taking a lot of time with, with you know, just three verses, four verses, two verses last week, and trying to just take the, the, the foundation here and build it into your life so there's a foundation of truth that you can, you can build a superstructure on and, and we can go places. And you find yourself now, you will find yourself as you engage this that much more armed against Satan and the schemes that he has for your life. Do you follow with me? Well, let's take a look. It's uh, chosen and adopted. The Lord has chosen us and uh, he has adopted us. If you think about the adoptive process, that's what goes on. Parents you know, are looking for some child, looking for somebody to love, and they choose somebody, they adopt them, and then for the rest of their lives they love them and they, in fact, give them everything that's theirs. They give them their love, their attention, their coaching, their guidance, their teaching, their discipline, uh, their name. Eventually, they give them all of their property because they, they leave it to them. They become inheritors of everything that, that, that comes along with a process called adoption. It starts out by talking about praise. And it says in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, how we praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we belong to Christ. Now, there's a lot in this, and I'm just going to kind of go through some of it with detail and skim some of it. But when it talks about praising God, I think that you need to, we need to take this more seriously, this whole issue of praise and worship. For one thing, the Bible says that when we praise God, we bless him. Now, what does it mean to bless him? Well, what does it mean to bless you? Ultimately, it means to make you happy. Things go the way you would like them to go. You know, about 40 minutes ago, I was outside by where they have the donuts, and I bumped into my grandchildren, and I got blessed by the hugs. And literally, praising the Lord is like hugging him. It's us coming back and saying, thank you. I care about you. I appreciate what you've done in my life. And it turns him on the way my grandkids turn me on. Does that make sense? The second thing about praise that I think is important, and see, a lot of us don't get it. You, during, during worship time in church, we, we have this attitude that, oh, that's about, you know, singing songs long enough for people to park their cars and get there so they can listen to Ralph. Uh, it's more about blessing God. But as you bless God, something happens. As you begin to enter into worship and you interact with the Lord, it does something to you and it builds your faith and it strengthens you and it strengthens your position with the Lord and God's grace is poured out that much more freely and you begin to access his power. Now here's the, here's the deal. Why I'm trying so hard to get these basics down tight is some of us live lives where we really never interact with the supernatural. We don't have a life of, of prayer and praise in our own. You know, I think you have to spend a half hour with the Lord every day. Sometime, whether it's a break at work, whether it's early in the morning, whether it's late at night, reading the Bible, maybe reading Christian books, talking to God about what's going on in your life, that you're interacting with God, you're blessing God, you're praising God, but something's happening. You're entering into the supernatural realm and blessings now begin to come your way from the, the spirit world into the physical world and, and God's going to change your life as you do that and, 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 we, and we find ourselves strong against the devil. Some of us, our Christian life consists of I go to church on Sunday and all week long I just try to cruise and make it and then the devil starts whispering lies. He gets us off track. We're bummed out. And our whole life is spent trying to scrape ourselves off the sidewalk once a week, spiritually. And we need to get to a place where we're growing and we start to have some strength and we start to know how to wield spiritual power as we walk with the Lord. So part of this is praising the Lord. Now, secondly, he identifies God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going, well, yeah, so what? Um, what, what, he's, what he's doing is he's being careful to say this is God with a capital G, not God with a small g. This is God who wrote all that prophecy in the Old Testament that was fulfilled in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. I give you one scripture there, Isaiah chapter 53, that you could, you could look at where, it, you know, 400 years before crucifixion was invented, it describes somebody being born raised, rejected by his own people, crucified, and coming back to life and having many followers. And this was written 600 years before Jesus, 400 years before the Romans invented crucifixion. Another scripture would be Psalm 22 that almost in detail describes what went on on the cross. It was written 1000 BC. 
But Paul is identifying God as, as God who he is. You know, think about this. There's, there's a lot of people who have this attitude about God. We talked about this briefly last week. That the God I worship is like this. And they define God. When you define God, all you did is make an idol in your brain that's absolutely imaginary. It's nothing but a product of your imagination. You're, you're not even as well off as the person who takes a piece of wood and carves a God and then sits down and prays to it. And that's stupidity all by itself. But when you're a person who says, well, I wouldn't worship a God like that. I worship the God I would worship and in you describe what's a figment of your imagination. Uh, that God doesn't exist. And, and worse, that God even changes as you change. I mean, you know, it depends on your mood what God is all about. So what good is that God? But if you're dealing with the God who is there, you can't change him by describing him differently than he is. He is what he is. I am what I am. Okay? You, 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 you can't go away and describe me in some glowing terms and, and say, he's nice all the time, because I'm not. Um, he doesn't have crooked teeth, because I do. Yeah. It's just, I'm what I am. And God is what he is. Now, think about this for a second. If there is no God, and Paul says in, Rome, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no God and there's no resurrection, we Christians are fools above all. But I'm tell, here to tell you one thing, we're happy fools. <laughs> if there is no God and all we did was live our life according to this book and the value system that this book gives to us, the love, the health, the, the esteem for your partner in marriage, all that it teaches, the value system that gave us democracy. And we're pretty happy fools. And so we have really very little that we've put to risk. We've believed something that's enriched our lives, even if it weren't true. And I'm not saying it's not true. I believe it is true. See, one of the, the things about what we've believed is that God answers prayer. And we've prayed and we've seen answers to prayer. But, but for some reason... There is no God, and that didn't really happen. That was just a series of coincidences. Well, then we're happy fools. But if there is a God, and you're dealing with the God who is there, and he's revealed himself in this book, and he's revealed his pattern for your life in this book, and you choose not to believe it or to reject it, you are putting yourself in incredible jeopardy. You are risking eternity. You're risking everything good that God has to offer to you. Uh, you're, you're making foolish risks. See, one of the problems that I find with postmodernism is that we sort of give up on everything. There's this, this attitude of underlying despair. I, I have no hope in anything, so I, I, I'm, I'm unwilling to. I'm a cynic. I'm a professional cynic. So what you find is that people... 35 years ago, were willing to, you know, argue with you about God. They were willing to debate. They were willing to read books. They were willing to do research. They were willing to fight 
But as soon as you got them in the fight, you're on the way to truth. There are there are so many books that have been written by guys. The latest one is 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 um, Case for Christ, the Case for Faith. Lee Strobel was a, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and his wife was a Christian, and he thought that Christianity was nonsense. And so he decided to go out and to do enough research to convince his wife to not become a Christian. Today he's a pastor. Um, uh, 20 years ago, a guy named, or 30 years ago, I'm getting old, a guy named Josh McDowell was set out to be an attorney. Uh, he set out to disprove Christianity. Uh, today he's an evangelist who's written countless books about Christianity. When, when people will deal with the evidence, then they get convinced. But we live in a world where we don't want to deal with the evidence. It's much easier to deal with our imagination. Oh, the God I worship is like this. So Paul is taking care here to say this is the God I'm talking about, the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ, the God who is the author of the Old Testament that leads you to Christ. Does that make sense? Well, let's go on a little further. And he says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we belong to Christ. Now, why does it say spiritual blessing? Well, I think because you tap into the material blessing via the spiritual blessing. That when you come into relationship with the Lord, you come into prayer, you come into praise, you come into claiming the promises of God, something happens to you in the spirit realm. And in, we are spiritual beings. The Bible says we will live forever in heaven or hell. Our bodies are going to be cast off, but we as spirit beings will live forever. And, and so God in, in a spiritual realm does something in your life and then it has implications for the physical realm. God changes me. Suddenly I have faith that I didn't have before and things happen and, and you know, God touches people and there's healings. I, I was with somebody the other day that had cancer and they were told they were going to die and they don't have cancer anymore and they're happily living and doing their job and worshiping the Lord and, and what have you. God's grace and God's power are made available to us in the spiritual realm and then they work their way out in the physical realm. Does that make sense? It goes on and talks about in the heavenly realms. And, and the word realm could be like domain. I, I like the, that kind of terminology because it doesn't make us think of heaven as someplace about 150 million light years away. And God is out there somehow unreachable. Uh, it, it, you start thinking about domain. And I mean, I mean here we are. We're in the domain of the mayor of Honolulu. But the mayor's not here, physically. We're in the domain of the governor of the state of Hawaii. We're in the domain of, you know, whatever. Uh, but but do, domain or, or realm gives us this idea of, it's not just what you can see or touch or feel, but that something else occupies the same geographical space that you occupy. Now, if you ever want to just go have some weird fun, um, you know, I, I'm kind of a binge reader. I get off on something and I start, I'll go buy, you know, I'll read five, eight, ten books in a row. And, and, and I twice in my life have gotten off on astronomy and cosmology. Every time I, I see those kind of pictures like that the Hubble telescope sends back, of, of, of what goes on and um, it, it just blows my mind. 
When I, I was I was reading an article the other day in Smithsonian Magazine. You guys shouldn't come to church at ten o'clock because I tend I tend to tell all the stories at ten. It takes longer. I was reading an article in Smithsonian Magazine, and it was asking, did Da Vinci understand the logarithmic distances that are spatial relationships that are invested in nature? And it goes to to Nautilus. There are mathematical distances, the relational distances between every cell of the Nautilus as it grows. And you find that same a logarithm in different nebulas, nebulae in space. You find the same logarithm of distance in different features in nature, in leaves. There's, there's a numeric relationship that's all throughout nature. Now you tell me there's not a God. And you get off into reading stuff that, that by, by cosmologists. Cosmology is the science of the universe. And it means we study the micro-universe, the smallest particle of the atom, all the way up to the macro-universe. And we take these different scientific disciplines and we crunch them in together so that we can get a perspective that a guy who's only studying astronomy doesn't get a perspective of what's going on in electrons that are floating around an atom. But you begin to look at all of it at once and you come up with some very strange ideas. And, and a, a very good introduction to this and a good thin little book to read that isn't really complicated in its wording but will make your head spin on your shoulders is called A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. Now, Hawking is a cosmologist. He is, they think, more brilliant than Albert Einstein was. And he picked up where Einstein left off. Uh, Hawking also is a victim of Lou Gehrig's disease, and he's down to where he's a quadriplegic. He wasn't always, but in college he started to lose his, his, his physical abilities. He's a quadriplegic. For a long time, he communicated with the world with a pointer. They would, they would clench in his teeth, and he would touch com, uh, a, a computer. Now they've got a device so that wherever his eyes move, he can, he, can, he can actually operate the computer by looking at things, and he communicates with the world. They say that Hawking is so smart that these equations that will fill a blackboard, he can't work on a blackboard, he works them out in his mind. Now, Stephen Hawking says that Einstein's theory of relativity, when it works out in, all the way out, and it wasn't E equals MC squared, that's the summary of it. Einstein's theory is monstrous. But when you work out what Einstein's equations take you to, one of the things, one of the conclusions that you come to is that there are, now get this, this bothers me a lot. He, they used to say as many as seven different dimensions or seven different material universes occupying the same space. Now they're saying there are possibly an infinite number of universes occupying the same space. We know that 85% to 90% of all the matter in the universe is called dark matter. And nobody knows what it is and nobody can see it. All they know is that it has ability, has gravitational force or magnetic force and is able to bend light waves and it's something out there and they don't know what it is. Now you start hearing about God working in the heavenly realms and the cosmologists 
Stephen Hawking particularly, who's not a Christian, will always come back and draw parallels to the Bible because it's the only thing that they can use to gather metaphors. They want to say, well, it works like this, and then they'll come back and say, well, it works like what the Bible describes when it talks about God being in heavenly realms, that God may be physically present and angels and demons physically present where you are. You just can't see them, and they're operating. And, and, and so they go back to the Bible for metaphors to describe science. Interesting, huh? But the Bible is trying to communicate that kind of stuff to us. That we live in a spiritual universe and the spirit world trumps the material world and God blesses us in heavenly places and it results in material blessings and answers to prayer and things happening and it says all this because we belong to Christ. Is this good? You've been listening to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. 